pray with me. God, I need you. We need you. We want to rightly understand your word, that we can apply it well, that it would edify our faith. So would you do what what I can't do through carefully chosen words, through preparation? Only you, Lord, can illuminate your word and can change our hearts. So we pray that that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, that you would cause growth, that you would cause us to look with all the more wonder and joy and love at your text and at who you are. Uh, we love you, Lord. Be with us now, we pray. Amen. Well, if, you're, if you've been around, you know that we are in a, uh, a sermon series on the summer of joy and lament. And we, we went through, we've now gone through all of the joy. We kind of, Andrew, a couple weeks ago, transitioned us from joy into lament. And then last week, Don started diving deeper into what it means to lament. And he used language of of turning to God as kind of the first step. When we're in a season where we're lamenting, we turn to God. It's the right place to turn. And then we bring the real us, the real you, to the real God, the real emotions that we're really feeling, and we turn to that's met with the real God who can affect the change, who understands what we're going through and can relate and grow us and help us in our need. So turn, turning to God was the first, the first kind of step. It's not formulaic, but, it, but we do see this biblical structure of what it means to lament. Turning to God is the, the first of those steps. Today we get to look at bringing complaint. What does it mean to bring your complaints to God? And then the next couple of weeks we have asking boldly and then choosing to trust. So today, what does it mean to bring our complaints to God in lament? I just got back on Friday from a, a three-day backpacking trip with my second oldest daughter, Taylor. We went uh, up to Alice Lake. If some of you have been there, I know. But if you haven't, it is unbelievably gorgeous. And it is up in the Sawtooth. It's a, from the trailhead to our camping site. It was about six and a half miles and 2,000 feet of vertical gain. And Taylor is a petite gal. She weighs less than 100 pounds, and we weighed her down with a pack that was 36 pounds. May have been a little bit too much. Uh, poor, poor choice on mine. We repacked it on the way down and made it a little bit easier. But believe me, she had every, every opportunity to complain on the way up. Uh, that's over a third of her body weight that she was carrying in addition to just getting up uh, a hard mountain. And I was so proud of her because I, I heard very little complaint from her. And it, it, just in thinking about complaint, it's such an interesting thing in our culture, complaining is, because there's some things that you can generally complain about, and it's pretty safe to complain. You can complain about traffic or the weather or the cost of gas or if, if there's like a stink that everybody agrees is a stink, you can complain about that. A poor night of sleep, those are all very safe things to complain about. Nobody's really going to like label you as a huge complainer. A bit riskier to complain about, less safe, is maybe some governmental decisions. You could get into trouble if you complain too much or in the wrong crowds, or your management at work, or a homework assignment that you don't like and you complain to the teacher about it. Those may not be super safe. Riskier still is if you complain about 
the food that you're being served when you're a guest in somebody's house is probably a bad, bad form or the poor quality of a child's art piece would be not a good thing to complain about or not having the very latest piece of technology because yours is outdated by an entire year. And you may not get much sympathy or empathy when you complain about those things. And in preparing and reading Psalm 10 and other texts and just thinking about complaint, I, I realized a couple things. Uh, and that is that, that I tend to suppress nearly all of my complaints. I just don't bring them out. I don't want to be labeled a complainer. And I think there's lots of reasons for that, um, including in my family growing up, complaining was just kind of not acceptable. It was considered rude. Having many of you share that experience, that's largely how I raise my own kids, is that we, we don't complain. We do hard things. We, we get through it. We band together. We just don't complain. We're playing sports growing up. If I didn't get enough playing time or had some complaint, I was told, well, work harder. Don't complain about it. Just work harder. Or my time in the Marines definitely affected how I complained because you, you don't complain in the Marines. It is unacceptable all the time. Grit your teeth, buckle down, and keep going. And it's largely the same even in the fire service. You, you shouldn't complain. We have a great job that most of us just love doing. And if so, if you're going to complain, you better bring a solution to that complaint or you will be labeled a complainer even the first time that you complain about something. So all of this, I realize, just presents uh, a tension for me, a challenge, because if I couldn't, if I shouldn't complain to my family or my coworkers or my supervisors, then how much more should I not complain to God? He has already given me so much that I can recognize. Do I have a right to complain to him about anything? Or shouldn't I? Because there's lots of texts that would support it. Have a grateful attitude all the time. And I think perhaps the answer is that we can swing that pendulum too far to one side or to the other side. You can, you can complain about every little thing to God and take every complaint to him and truly not have a grateful heart. And I think that's wrong. I think that's an unhealthy spiritual practice. But probably for most of us, including myself, the pendulum is too far on the other side where I don't bring any complaint to God. And I don't think that's healthy either. It isn't because that we don't have any complaints. All of us experience complaint from time to time, but it's because we suppress them, pretend like they aren't there. And I know that, that many of you know lament far more intimately and personally than I do. And some of you perhaps have not experienced a season that would really cause you to lament. But here is what I am super confident, is that challenges will come in life. In my life and in yours, whether you've been through some already or not, life can just beat us up. Our, our, our own personal lives are full of sin. We see sin in other people. Our life, our world is, is full of brokenness because of sin. Storms will blow in. Dark clouds gather 
and build on the horizon and then proceed in and the rain and the hail and the storm comes and leaves destruction in its wake. So I want myself and I want all of us to be as spiritually prepared for those times as we can be. I want to know how do I handle those when those storms come? What do I do when I have a lamentable occasion that's just sitting on my doorstep? And I think it's important to cover because it's, while it's not impossible to do in the moment, this is training and equipping that is far more effective done before that comes to us. But not all of our complaints fall into the category of lament. So what's the difference between an ordinary complaint and and a lamentable complaint? Because lament is certainly not... How long, O oh Lord, will I have to eat tater tot casserole? Which is maybe what some of my kids would think is lament. Even though they love it the first time, the third and the fourth and the fifth time we serve it, they're like, how long? That is not lament. Or save me, O oh God, from my boss who gave me an average rating on my performance evaluation. Like those could be prayers, but I don't think they qualify quite in the same category as lament. Lament is this soul-deep cry of anguish, a desperate plea to God. Lament, I think, most often occurs when the complaint that we have is actually against God himself or something that he is allowing to happen. Whatever's happening is going against what we think God would want or against what it seems his character is. So perhaps some examples could be helpful. Maybe... A person is not getting any job offers. And so they wonder, God, don't you want me to be happy? I've, I've gone to school for so long. I've been studying and equipping myself. And now don't you want to provide for me? Why'd I go through all of this if you aren't going to open any doors for me with employment? Or a couple has been hoping for a baby but is not getting pregnant. And month after month, they cry out to God. Why, Lord? Don't you say that children are a blessing? Don't you want to bless us? Why are you allowing other people to have children but not us? Or someone's best friend or dearest loved one passes away, and they say to God, what is your good purpose in this? They were too young. They were the only person who really knew me, and they loved me, and, they, and you took them. Who do I have now? Or when disease like cancer invades somebody's body. Someone could complain to God, Lord, why would you allow this? She's so vibrant and she's serving you. She has young children that need her. It seems unloving. Or if depression is creeping into your soul, you might think, God, why why has my smile left me? Why has my joy been stripped? I thought following you was supposed to be Joy bringing in and and peace inducing, but I'm swimming in deep despair. Inner turmoil. You're supposed to be the lifter of my head and I don't even feel your presence. I know some of you know those cries all too well. I am I'm sorry for that pain that you have gone through for the the deep sorrow and despair that you've experienced. And I feel deeply just how hard and and troubling those situations are. 
So what I hope today that we see in our text is that lament is biblical. I believe, in fact, that it is the most appropriate response to seasons like these when hardship comes is to go to God in lament. It's good for us to go through lament. Last week, Don covered that first step, turning to God. Why do we turn to God with our complaints? Well, for one thing, he already knows. He knows our inner thoughts. He knows our heart. So if our heart is complaining, we need to be honest with him with our feelings to bring the real you into the real presence of God. We don't need to suppress anything because he already knows it. His word says, before a word is on my lips, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And he's the one that can do something about it. The God who speaks light and galaxies and animals and life into existence is the one who can change what we want to see changed. He is the one who changes hearts. He is the deliverer, the provider, the sustainer, and his sovereignty is over all things. But here is one of the reasons that I think is the greatest reason to bring lament to God, our complaint to God. There is a, a supernatural, God-designed, a miraculous change that he brings when we go through lament. So we're going to get to that. But first, I want to truly make the case that complaining to God is acceptable. That's what I had to do in my own heart. I had to con- be convinced, is this really okay to bring complaint to God? And I think we see it in Psalm 10. Right off the bat, we see that. Am I in the right spot here? There, that's what I want. It is a, a doozy of a statement. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This seems accusatory of God, doesn't it? The main complaint is that God isn't near. He isn't acting. Instead, he's hiding himself, turning a blind eye to what is going on. And the context for, for this main complaint, I think there's at least four things that he mentions here in this psalm. The first is injustice. People are oppressing the innocent and the poor, the helpless. We see it in verse 2. It says, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And then in verses 8 through 10, he sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. So the first reason that he's lamenting is that this injustice is just happening. The second thing is that these the wicked have this prideful, arrogant attitude. We see it in verse 2. In arrogance, they do these things. In verse 3, the wicked boasts... Verse 4, the pride in his face. Verse 5, he puffs at his foes. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Not only is there this injustice, but it's being done by, with such pride and arrogance. The third thing is that they have self-seeking attitudes. The wicked boasts of his desires of his soul, greedy for gain. He's not seeking the good of anybody else, just his own. And then fourth, the unbelief of the wicked. 
Verse 3, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. In verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? So we have prideful, arrogant people oppressing the poor with great unbelief that are self-seeking. And it seems that God doesn't care about it. It seems that their boasts that he's forgotten that, that they'll continue to be in able to do whatever they want because God's not going to hold them to account. That's why he says, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? The writer is lamenting that innocent, helpless, vulnerable, pe- vulnerable people are suffering at the hands of others who are wicked, unbelieving, prideful, and greedy. Isn't this situation worthy of lament? It's different than any of the other ones that I mentioned, but it is worthy of lament. When I look around the world, I still see this happening sometimes. So the first, or the principal complaint, God is far off, not doing anything about this. But the writer's response is to turn to God and to bring this complaint to him. And this pattern of bringing complaint to God is all throughout the Bible. It's, we see it in Job. We see it in Lamentations. But Psalms are full of them. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words that Jesus quoted on the cross. He himself brought, brought his complaint to God, the Father. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 35. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Psalm 44. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Notice how blunt and candid these comments are. There's no sugarcoating of what they're thinking, what they're feeling. It's not flowery. There's no euphemisms. They're saying what they are feeling, what they're, the real feelings, the real worries, the real questions, the real complaints. They're bringing all of those because God can handle them. He wants the real, raw and unfiltered complaint that we might have. Now, there's still reverence. They're not cursing God. They're not cussing at him. But there's certainly raw complaint here. And Jesus himself brought his complaint to the Father in the garden. Don talked about it last week as well. After he tells his friends Peter, John, and James... My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He prays to God, let this cup pass from me. 
Psalm 142, one last one. You're still needing more convincing. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint to him. I tell my trouble before him. It's the right place to turn, to bring our complaints and our worries and our anxieties. We bring them before God. I'm convinced it's both appropriate and good to bring our complaints to God. And while I'm not good at it, I definitely want to grow in this. But bringing our complaints to God is only one of the parts of lament. It's not where we end. We don't air our grievances like this and then hang up the phone and leave it. It's just one step. First step is to turn to God, then to bring our complaints. Then ask boldly and choose to trust. To truly lament, we have to go to God, for he's the one who cares for us. He's the one that can affect the change. And so we bring him our complaints. We tell him what's troubling us, even when what is troubling us is God himself. But we don't stay there. We don't give him the silent treatment. We don't stop talking. We continue on. Our lament is woefully un- incomplete if we don't pass through bringing our complaints into the next things. So we then ask boldly and choose to trust, and we can see that that's what happens. I'm not going to spend much time here because we are going to spend time in the next couple weeks on these two. But we see it, the pattern, the structure of it in this psalm, starting in verse 14. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The author turns to God and remembers his promises. He trusts in God's sovereignty and goodness as, the, as, as he closes out this refrain of his lament. O Lord, you hear. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Remember from last week, what we think and feel is real, even if it's not true. And because it's real, we bring that complaint to the Lord. But we don't leave it there. We ask God for the things that we long for. And we trust that his plans are best. Just like Jesus did. Not my will be done, but yours. And when we do this, there really is this supernatural change that can happen. A couple of years ago, I I had this situation that I think provides a helpful analogy for what what I mean by this supernatural change. My dog, Maisie, got sprayed at about 3 a.m. by a skunk in our backyard, like took a skunk spray full in the face at 3 a.m. We have a dog door. She she came inside of our house and she rubbed that stank all over everything, like all over the carpets and the couches and our closet and the bed skirt, everything. Some of you probably remember because my family and I came to church and actually you could smell skunk pretty strongly on us. And 
our plan for what to do was to basically do laundry for like the next six months, um, trying to just wash it out, to go to the store and buy out all of the Febreze that they had and cover it up. That was our plan. Until somebody from the church was like, hey, have you heard of an ozone machine? And I said, no, I have no idea what that is. He said, well, this is what you need is an ozone machine. You don't need Febreze. So stay with me because this is a little bit technical. But what an ozone machine does is it passes air through this fan. And as the air passes through, it takes the single oxygen molecule and it creates an O2 molecule. But oxygen doesn't want to stay as an O2 molecule. It actually wants to go back to O1. And the way it does that is it finds uh, scents, organic scents, and it breaks that off and chemically reacts and changes the scent to break it down. So this is what they use uh, disaster cleanup companies. If you have a fire in your house and there's smoke damage, they'll bring ozone machines in and that will remove the smoke smell. Or if you purchase or rent a house that the previous owner was a smoker, they'll put an ozone machine in there because it removes the scent and it does it with skunk smell as well. It goes in, chemically changes, and actually removes the scent. It doesn't cover it up. It removes it. It changes it so that there's no more scent at all. So how does that, the same thing? It is like lament because we can cover our sorrow or our anger or our complaint, suppress those real feelings, shove them down like they're not there, spray some Febreze on them and hope that nobody smells them, or we can take that sorrow and anger and grief and frustration and wondering and complain to the Lord who already knows them, who already knows our innermost thoughts. And similar to the chemical reaction in an ozone machine, we can find true transformation take place in our hearts and minds. And this is what we see, for an example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So I want us to look at this text. It's a familiar text for many of you. I'm going to start in 7b through 10. This is Paul writing this. And he says, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. I don't know if this, is, this was lament or not, but I think it certainly could be. I think it was. We don't know what the thorn was, but we know it was torturous for Paul. And we know it was brought on by Satan. So what does Paul do? He turns to the Lord. He brings his complaint to him. He pleads with him. And what happens to the thorn? Paul actually becomes thankful for it. He's grateful. It There's the chemical reaction, this change that happens he gladly boasts about it, how weak he is, how needy of Christ he is. It transforms not just this situation with the thorn. It transforms how Paul walks through any type of lamentable situation. 
It permeates to all of his weaknesses. Every time he's insulted, every time he goes through hardship, whenever he's persecuted, in the midst of calamity, he remembers this, this change that happened because he went through lament. How God was wise and good and loving to bring him through it. It's a chemical reaction in his heart, this transformation. Growth that doesn't minimize any difficulty that you might be going through that might come into your life. But it helps us know how to handle it, how to handle our own thorns and trials. We take them to the one who can truly affect the change we need, the one who can work any situation according to his good purposes. So just as, as Don did last week, I want to just cast our gaze upon Jesus as we transition to communion about how he gives us the perfect example, the most lamentable thing in all of history. Jesus was greatly troubled to the point of sweating blood. He knew the calamity he was in, the persecution he was facing. He knew that those who oppressed him were seeking his death. He knew his friends were going to abandon him. He knew the Father would remove his comforting presence as Jesus took our sin upon himself. And what's his reaction? He turns to God. He makes his complaint known and asks boldly, My soul is burdened and greatly troubled. Remove this cup from me. And then he chooses to trust, yet not what I will, but what you will. The greatest lament of all time through the trial, the greatest accomplishment in all of history. That's what we get to remember with communion. Our Savior's suffering and victory so that we can be with him. Our sin, our debt has been paid. We are forgiven. We have such hope because he has purchased our lives through his death. We have victory over death and have hope of resurrection because he was victorious over death. And was resurrected. If you believe this, if you place your trust and faith in Christ, then we want to invite you to take communion with us. The servers are going to come up and distribute the bread and the juice for our communion. Hold on to those and I'll come back up and, and lead us in communion. But if that's not where you place your faith and trust, then please just let those elements pass from you. And instead, think about this God who we can take our lament to who can transform the worst of situations in life when we're beat up. And that modeled that through the most lamentable thing in all of history. The death of the perfect one, the son of God sacrificed for us. Would you consider placing your trust for he is so worthy of, of our trust. So I'm gonna invite the band to come up and we'll distribute the, the elements, would you pray with me? God, I don't know all of the situations that are in this room. Some who are coming out of a season of lament, some who are entering, some who are drowning in just hard situations. But we know that you are the one to whom we can turn. So would you be near? Would you pour out your grace? Would you hear our complaints when we raise them and transform our hearts to trust in your promises that you are for us and not against us. May you know us 
You hear us, you love us, and you are good to us. Help us to trust in you when we bring complaint. We pray in your name. Amen.